Episode 6 of the Time Out with DG podcast. Thanks for sticking with us. If you're just joining us, make sure and subscribe. Hit that subscribe button. I think that's how it works. And then you're getting alerts all the time. I'm new to this whole podcast thing. This is Episode 6. It's going pretty well so far. Uh, Thanks so much for sticking with us. Give us a like. Give us a recommendation. If you don't like things that we're doing, just, just go ahead and give us some feedback. I would appreciate it. Right now for Episode 6, since it's October and the baseball winds are blowing, we figured we'd bring on a guy who many of you grew up to. The voice, the former voice of the Houston Astros on television for many, many years. Bill Brown is on Time Out with DG. How are you, Bill? Doing great, Daniel. And you? I'm fantastic. You are just fresh off the golf course. Yeah, and uh, you know, this is a great time of year to play golf, and it, but you have to do it in time to get home and, and get your warm-up in for the ball game because that's where all the interest is. That's right. Uh, October is so fun yeah. now. I mean, just what is it like for you who spent so much time around the team to just continuously see this group do what they do? Well, you know, people uh, sometimes ask, well, do do you miss it, especially in the postseason? And I say, well, you know, we didn't do the games in the postseason on TV because the networks have Which is a shame, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) I I really wish, like, you know how they do it in basketball, like the first round, the local TV broadcast? Yes. I I wish Major League Baseball would do that. Well, to to flash back decades for you, um, when I was in Cincinnati in 79, we were allowed to do the first round of the playoffs. Oh, wow. Okay. On local TV, and oh, what a thrill! You know, it just after you've been following the team for all year, and maybe for many years in several cases before that, uh, it just means so much to be able to sit there at the microphone and do these games. But you know, going in that you're not going to do them, and, and I'm happy for our radio guys that yeah. they that they get to do everything on the air from beginning to end of season. But yeah, this is what you live for. This is. Uh, what the whole long journey is all about, getting to this point in the season. And uh, playoff baseball, as you know, and, and we're watching it every night, is so different from regular season baseball. The managers make their moves. Uh, they're almost preemptive pitching change moves. Sure. Uh, so Grinke isn't allowed to complete the fifth inning because we bring in Presley to choke off a rally and that kind of thing. And obviously you can't uh, do this with your bullpen for six months because it would wear these pitchers out. But short-term, short series, yes, uh, by all means. And I think I love it. I love the strategy. I love the way the managers use their people. Uh, I, I like all the attention that is given to each and every move and every game. It's just right. fantastic drama. So how do you – I ask this question all the time to start the podcast off. How do you sum up this journey that you've been on in your broadcast career? Well, I'm extremely fortunate and blessed uh, to have had this journey and when I was 14 years old, this is what I wanted to do. Not a whole lot. That of people, early, huh? Yeah, not a whole lot of people, you know, get locked in <laughs> at age 14. Well, it's funny. <laughs> it's funny that you said that because I'm kind of along those same lines. I'll let you tell your story and then I'll tell ah, you. Yeah, I want to hear yours too. Uh, no, I just, uh, people said, well, well, why did you know that then? And I said, well, I knew I couldn't play. So that eliminated that <laughs> option. And so how can I get close to the game? You know, I've always been fascinated by sports in general, but baseball in particular. And I've been associated and I've done the other sports, but baseball was always my first love. And I just wanted to be as close to it as I possibly could. So I've really been blessed to be in this profession for a long time. Was there a moment that you, it kind of hit you that this is what you want to do? For me, it was, that's where my story kind of picks up. It was, I was watching big Chicago Bulls fan growing up. Uh-huh. I was born in Chicago. I grew up here in Houston, but Michael Jordan, and that was that was my guy. So it was the yeah. 1993 NBA Finals. Okay. I thought I was going to be in the NBA. 
I really did. I was so excited about that. And then I realized while I was watching those finals, I have no chance of going to the NBA. Yeah. So then I thought the same thing. I want to be mm -hmm. as close as possible. Mm -hmm. And um, that was my exact moment. I remember exactly where I was. I was sitting in front of the TV in the living room, right in front of it. Did you have a moment that they kind of locked in for you? Or I, don't, kind of I don't think so, but I would sit in front of the TV. And, of course, back then we had one baseball game a week on Saturdays. That was it. All the other games were on radio. And I would listen to radio every night to the Cardinals growing up in Missouri. But I would uh, get to the point, and I don't know if I was 16 or what what age exactly it was, of turning off the sound on the TV and having my little tape recorder and uh, trying my hand at doing the play-by-play. -play. I'd have the rosters in front of me and that sort of thing. And so um, after that was a humbling experience, finding out how good <laughs> I was not at that point and trying to get some feedback from people sure. who were in the industry, as you probably did too. And uh, they gave me good direction, and uh, eventually my tapes sounded a little bit better, and then eventually I was able to get on the radio and do some high school play-by-play, -play, that kind of thing. And, and probably somewhere along that line, Daniel, when I was able to do a high school football or basketball game and feel that I had accomplished the mission pretty well, then, then it really kind of set in. Yeah. Uh, what's the toughest part about broadcasting a game for you? I think the unpredictability of what you're doing, um, there, there's no script, there's no template here. Um, and so uh, I think the preparation is critical because sometimes you're sitting there thinking, you know, I don't know the rule book as well as I should. And uh, what if there's an infield fly rule here that comes into play sure. and something weird happens based on that? and I don't know how to explain that or interpret that, then that would be so embarrassing. And then you go back and you do a little more prep and a little more study because you understand that uh, that all has to be hay in the barn by the time this game starts. And so then you just let the game play out based on the preparation you've done. And eventually, you'll find out that you should have done some other preparation in some other area. Like one time in San Diego, we had uh, <laughs> we had some bees that came on the field, and uh, they took over, and the game had to be stopped because of these bees on a chair down the third base I, line. I think I remember this. I do remember that. <laughs> and we had, I think, a 50-minute delay while they could get a beekeeper and have this I would have keeper. left the stadium, by the way. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, with all these bees. I, I'm right. a big apophobia guy. I don't, yeah. I don't like bees, but I, so I don't even know how you guys well, are even in the building. But, okay, well, all of a sudden we're not doing a baseball game anymore. What are we doing here? You know, we yeah, don't right. know. And uh, how do you fill the time? Well, you're on the air. They're not going to go away from this programming to do a 30-minute infomercial. It's sure. up to you to figure out something to say here, and you're way out of your field. So that <laughs> so was So what would you do? We um, actually had a guest, uh, the president of the San Diego Padres, came on the air with us. Hadn't met him before. So, you know, you're on the <laughs> hey, air. You're like, ah, yeah. I'm Bill Brown. You're Tom. You know, yeah, right. Sort sure, of thing. sure. Kind of weird, but um, he was very good at explaining exactly what the situation was, what they were doing about getting a beekeeper to the stadium, and what their plans were, and all these things. And I actually think, by the way, that it was from uh, there was a ball girl down the left field line and sitting on this chair, and uh, she had her jacket on the back of the chair, and she had long hair, and the long hair was draped over the back of the jacket. And my personal theory is that, that it was something to do with the hairspray on the hair 
that got on the jacket that attracted these bees oh because gosh. that's where they were all congregating. Yeah. <laughs> that's wild. It's just a one of many stories that you have. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, um, you, you go back to... But not, the unpredictability of it, yeah. that, that's the, the toughest part. Well, and Larry Durker, you know, of course, had the seizure during a game in the Astrodome in 99, and I didn't even know who the player was whose legs were kind of sticking out from from the dugout and uh, the camera guys, uh, the director wouldn't get a shot of who it was because that's just something that's not going to go over well if you show who the person is. And I I was worried about, well, once we found out, we were told by the camera guy who told the producer who told us, hey, it's Larry Durker who's down. I thought, oh, my gosh, because Larry's, you know, one of my best friends, and I didn't know Mm -hmm. if his wife Judy was at the game or at home watching. So you're trying to process all this information while you're talking and you just uh, get get very mentally torn up in knots because you just can't say the wrong thing and have her wondering, oh no, right. what's what's going on? I'm not getting any information. It's it's maddening to be doing a baseball game like that and not be doing a baseball game anymore. This yeah, no, is life right. and death now. You're talking exactly. about that was my worst day ever in baseball. Is that right? Yes, it was. That was one of my questions, kind of later on. But that that was it right yeah, there. So how did it. you do it? Like how did you did you just kind of pull yourself to the side for a second and just kind of compose yourself and be yeah okay hey this is this is the situation at hand. Yeah, I think we we did go to a break at that point. We were all just kind of resetting the people in the truck and the two broadcasters and. All right, what do we do with this? Uh, we've got an ambulance coming, and he's going to take. And and the game was suspended, as it turned out. So we didn't do any more baseball that day, which I thought was the only appropriate way to go on with things. Uh, you don't you don't do a game when somebody's life is hanging in the balance like that. And so um, it was quite an unusual day. But that you know, I think of Al Michaels doing an earthquake during the World Series. You know, all yes. these things that, that come up that now all of a sudden have nothing to do with sports. But Al did an absolutely magnificent job. I don't know if anybody else could have done a job mm-hmm. as well as he did under those circumstances. But he knew, you know, he knew San Francisco because he lived there. He knew all the different the aerial shots. He could identify certain sections of the city. Well, how lucky was that? Because if it had been one of the New York guys, it would have been a totally different situation. So you're from Missouri. Mm -hmm. You went to Missouri. Mm -hmm. Um, What was your first gig out of college? I worked for WOAI in San Antonio, radio and TV, and I was hired to be a newsman. And I did not do sports. Another similarity. Yes, with you, and <laughs> yeah. we, and we, neither one of us liked it at all. <laughs> no, but but unlike you, see, you had a more esoteric job, a more a more mentally challenging job. I was uh, chasing ambulances and getting film of the victim being loaded in the ambulance from a, from a shooting or a stabbing or a oh, wreck. I I don't know. I don't. I honestly don't know how news people do it right now. I I, I don't know. I don't know how you did it. I don't know how you processed it, but I promise you, Daniel, I had no interest in doing that. I was sent out on a drowning one time, and I just found that to be very repulsive. Uh, the family was standing over there while they were trying to bring the body up, and, and I just thought, I don't want to be here. This sure. is this is not why I signed up to be in this business. But eventually, I got drafted into the army. When I came out of the army, I got into sports, so I was lucky that way. <laughs> so, but you always wanted to do sports, though, yes, right? I mean, yes. so was it kind of like one of those things? Hey, you got to get my foot in the door here, and yeah, you know, I needed a job. You know, yeah. back in those days, uh, it was 1969 when I graduated from college, and back in those days, um, we had uh, the the draft came in the military draft shortly after that, about an, another year, about 1970. 
But uh, guys were either, you know, enlisting or, you know, they would ask you in the job interview, well, are you, are you 4F or 1A? What's your draft classification? You'd tell them, yes, I'm 1A, um, could be drafted. I'm not going to enlist. At the time, actually, at OAI in San Antonio, the general manager had been a Marine, and he was trying to help me get in the Marine Reserves. So oh. that, that would have taken me, you know, in a different direction where I would have had a six-year commitment but doing monthly meetings and mm-hmm. things like that, but still Definitely. still staying in play for the business and, you know. Not yeah, not be, the same commitments, obviously. That right, yeah, you're tell. not getting sent to Vietnam and that yeah. kind of thing. So I, that's, that's the route that I preferred, but my eyesight wasn't so good. So I was turned down for that, and about the time that happened, uh, the military draft came along. So I was taken very early in the draft, and uh, I went into the Army. And my strategy at that point became, let's get this over with. Let's get in and out of here, and let's not re-enlist. Let's not extend. Yeah, I'll, I'll take my chances. <laughs> what was your, when you look back at that period of your life, what is your biggest takeaway? How much did you grow up as an individual? Um, what did you learn to maybe help you on later in life? Good question. And I think this only comes into focus with, with decades passing and looking back now and seeing how things turned out. And that is that... Um, by the way, you hear an airplane. It's a beautiful day here in Houston, <laughs> so we're outside. We're going to let this one go by. Yeah, <laughs> As yeah. you're speaking about your time in the military, we hear a plane go by. Uh, so I think that was perfect timing on that. That's part. right. It was. And I was yeah. on a plane to uh, Saigon, Vietnam from the States, and that was about a 14-hour flight. So, oh, um, no, I just, looking back on it now, I think, uh, first of all, it was a blessing to serve in the military. And, you know, when all of us came back from Vietnam, uh, we were ashamed to say where we had been if somebody asked us because we were not being celebrated for serving in Vietnam at that time. It was Mm -hmm. a very unpopular war. Uh, Some people would kind of look down their nose and say, well, you you couldn't get out of that, or you really, you you went over there and did that, and they kind of looked down their nose at it. What's that feeling Uh, like? Not good. Not good. You're not proud. Um, you're kind of shirking from any conversations about that. You don't bring it up. Wow. Uh, and so it's it, what I am. Unbelievably so ha- difficult, right? Yeah. If you're spending yeah. so much time and effort, blood and treasure. Yes. And you can't even talk about it. Right. I mean, I can't even imagine what that's. Yeah. Like. But, you know, I will say that I'm so proud of people in this country right now for celebrating veterans and uh Boy, I, you know, I want to do that as much as I can. And every time uh, there's a, a veterans event, I, I want to try to go and, and, you know, do my little part to uh, celebrate veterans. We have uh, an event my wife and I have worked on for 11 years here in Cyprus called Salute to Our Heroes. And uh, so we honor veterans at that event. And we always have a military speaker. And we've had uh, Medal of Honor recipients. We've had uh, very heroic people. We had Oliver North several years ago. We've had some some well-known uh people in the military and very good speakers and the money goes to scholarships for the cypher educational foundation so that's that's the mission but but just to meet these guys who were so heroic and these and then women we've had some women uh, pilots mm-hmm. uh, martha mcsally who's serving in congress came here and spoke um it's it's just made me appreciate even more what that is to serve this country and it's important. It's really important. And I did not grasp that at all at the time. This was just something that, A, I wanted to avoid. B, I didn't believe in the war in Vietnam, didn't want to go. Um, you know, through the years now, looking back through a different lens, I'm really glad I served. I'm glad I went. 
I'm glad I have that kind of framework to, to reference some things that are happening today. And then when I came back, I got a break and I did go to Cincinnati and get into sports. <laughs> yeah. And from, yeah, one more question about that, because uh-huh. do you sense from those that served alongside you that they feel the same way, given that there's, um, they're happy that the, the tide has turned on that front, right? When it, yeah. when it comes to veterans, because now there's a lot of people, you see it at every game, veterans are honored. It's, it's, it's something that is ingrained now in the culture after especially September 11th. Do you, are a lot of your fellow um, reserve men and women yeah. feel the same way? I think, think so. I, I can't really speak for them, but I would think so. Uh, a lot of us have kind of shared experiences, mm-hmm. so I'm thinking they, they're on the same wavelength that I am maybe on this issue, and that is that, uh, okay, um, you know, and I don't know, it doesn't have to be serving the country in a military capacity, but there are many different ways of serving. Uh, sure, people, sure. People serve in the state legislature or what have you, and that's it's all great. I appreciate all that. Right. But um, it's just the idea that, hey, you know, we have a commitment as human beings to, to serve mankind in some way. And um, I, I think from that comes uh, gratitude for others who have done it. Cincinnati. Now, when you get back, <laughs> I, I I read up. You, you did a little bit of everything, right? I mean, when you came back, you did hockey, yeah, uh, baseball, Batman, basketball. So, what was it like, kind of getting back into the groove that you'd kind of left that broadcasting to go overseas? Oh, oh, this was Nirvana for me. Uh, <laughs> I bet it was. You know, Cincinnati was. You know, at that point, we were we were Midwesterners from Missouri, my wife and I, and so Cincinnati was, is called the Midwest. I've never really did. You two meet in college, uh, by the way. We met in high school. Actually. Oh, in high, we, wow, we, high school we, sweethearts. That's we, great. We were kind of we kind of grew up she together. Put up with you for that long. Well, That's our impressive. first date was the senior prom, so it took us a while. But then in college, we dated and we finally got engaged, got married right after college. So. Uh, 50th anniversary uh, in June this year. So oh, X, congratulations. Been, yeah, thank yeah. you. It's been a big year for us to celebrate that. Yeah, fantastic. With the, with the grandkids and everybody. We went to Jackson Hole and had a great time with the whole family. Excellent. Yeah, uh, but no, I, I think um, Cincinnati just opened up a whole new world, and uh, I was doing weekend sports there. I was a booth announcer, the most boring job in TV the other three days. But uh, but my employers told me, hey, look, just put your voice on tape with the booth announcements Go out to a Reds game. Go to a Cincinnati basketball game. What, whatever's going on in sports, we want you to be involved in. And uh, so we don't need you here at the station at that time. And just be back for the 11 o'clock news because they always require us to do the live intro for the you know the personnel on the set at the 11 o'clock. Sure. I had to do that live. Yeah. But, uh, no, I, I would be at a Reds game, and I would take my little recorder with me, and I'd find an empty booth, and I'd get the game notes, and I'd sit there and – do some play-by-play for two, three innings while I was there, and then I had to go back to work. But I was always kind of working toward that, hoping for a break someday to do that. And I knew, hey, I was the Cub cub reporter at the station. It was going to yeah. take me a while to get to that point, but eventually it did happen. Yeah. So when did you when did you realize from after that point that, okay, I, I'm, I'm getting the traction that I, I need to get? To get to where I want to be, um, I would fill in on some Reds games. Um, we had. Uh, How did those opportunities come about? They came about uh, primarily with um, Charlie Jones, who was a big name with NBC Sports. Did a lot of uh, sporting events. He did uh, uh, NFL football for them. He did track and field. He did Olympic stuff. He did all kinds of events for NBC. Great voice, thorough professional, and uh, he lived in San Diego. 
And uh, this was a kind of a freelance job because uh, there were only about 35 televised games back in those days in the 70s. And uh, the Reds didn't want more games televised because they thought that if they televised home games, it would cut into their home attendance, which proved to be wrong. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, they, so almost all the games they televised were road games. And Charlie was a big name. So uh, he was hired to do the Reds games on a freelance basis. So we hardly ever saw him because they only did three home games a year. Yeah, uh, And he worked with a former shortstop for the Reds, Woody Woodward, who later, he was a shortstop for a long time in the big leagues, later became the general manager of the Seattle Mariners. And um, he was at the other end of the Randy Johnson trade when we got him in okay. uh, 98. And Woody's a good friend of mine, and he's he's been scouting for years, so I would see him in spring training even as recently as four or five years ago. Yeah. Uh, but Charlie, uh, when we got to September, would go away on the weekends to do NFL football. Oh. So he would do, for instance, if, if they were televising a Friday, Saturday, Sunday on the road, he'd do the Friday night, and then he'd be gone for Saturday and Sunday. So for about four weekends every September, they would need a replacement for Charlie, and I got to be that guy. And so I did that for three or four years, and then I was doing a pregame show. We had a half-hour pregame show. So I was down there interviewing players quite a bit yeah. and, and getting to know everybody, and that was very helpful in just kind of easing a little bit closer yeah. you know, to the day that uh, – you don't ever uh, hope for somebody to get sick, but but that would have been fine if it happened. <laughs> <laughs> That's, no, I totally understand. I, I understand. So, what was that? What was that like for you then, to finally get? You're you're in the booth. You're broadcasting Major League Baseball games instead of having your little recorder doing one, two, three innings. What is that moment like for someone who had been through so much to get to that point and this realization, like? Yeah, I'm doing this. Now. That was that was a huge break, and uh, I worked with a guy named Ken Coleman. So when, when when they first hired me, I was essentially doing color, which is very hard, as you know, for somebody who hasn't played the game at that level. And but Ken was very kind. He he was a very well known baseball name, and uh, he was very patient with me. And I would do a few innings of play by play, but but he did almost all of it. Mm -hmm. uh, then. Eventually he left, and I got a chance to do the play-by-play -play job. And uh, so that was what I really, of course, felt more comfortable doing. Sure. And what I had always wanted to do. And when that happened, it, it just, for me, it was a pinnacle. You know, I was doing some, some weekend sports during the off-season and some reporting, going out and doing interviews, high school football stuff, whatever they wanted me to do. Uh, the hockey you talked about, an occasional yeah. tennis Minor match. Minor league award. hockey. Right, anything. <laughs> I don't care, you know. And I didn't know hockey, but I somehow stumbled through it. But, uh, no, any, anything to get on the air in sports because you don't know – if this baseball thing is going to work out for you long term. Mm -hmm. And the better rounded you can become, the more you're taking care of yourself for the future and, and giving yourself more options for somebody to say, hey, you know, we don't need a baseball guy, but we need somebody who can do, you know, hockey or bowling or whatever it might be and weekend sports, some, Definitely. some different combination of things or be a reporter. Um, and I was fine with anything in sports. Isn't that amazing that that message kind of stood the test of time in this business? I feel like that's that's so true right now that all these you know young broadcasters that are coming through, me included, I was told hey, you got to learn how to do everything. 
at any point you can be called to do it. I just think it's fascinating that that has kind of stood the test of time. Yeah, and, you know, um, people move on quickly. They get sick. Different things happen. They have Mm -hmm. to have replacements. They have to have people who are up to speed, so that's why they tell you that. But it's I would tell anybody that myself just because it's happened to me. Hey, be ready, you know, just because you don't know anything about hockey. um, You might want to background yourself in that. It may not be what you want to do, but would you rather be doing a hockey game or sitting at home? That's an easy choice. Yeah, no question. Yeah, for sure. So how did the opportunity then uh, with the Astros come about, 1987? That was, that was a, a very unusual one. Um, I'm sure there's a story behind it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the general manager of the Astros at the time was Dick Wagner. Dick Wagner had been in Cincinnati when I was there. He had been the general manager of the Reds, and we had a good relationship. Well, I got fired uh, from doing Reds games. And then I moved around from, you know, we went to Pittsburgh for a year, came back to Cincinnati with Sports Time Cable Network for a year. Both those operations went out of business. Went to L.A. for two years with the Financial News Network, which is hard to explain. But Yes, I read about that. <laughs> I, yeah, I was going to ask. Well, yeah. What? Well, well here's, here was the deal. Um, <laughs> so we were, we being four or five of us on-air anchors, were under contract for two years to uh, – Anheuser-Busch owned Sports Time Cable Network, and we were in the Midwest, headquartered in Cincinnati. After one year, they decided they had hemorrhaged $25 million, and they were finished. But we $25 were, million dollars in, in one year. year. That's spectacular. Even that for is. Anheuser-Busch, that's impressive, right? <laughs> it's impressive. <laughs> uh, so then they, they, the lawyers met with us, and the first thing was, well, you guys have another year on your contract, so we're just we're obligated to pay you, so don't worry about it. Well, then two weeks later, same meeting with same people, different message. Actually, uh, you have an assignability clause in your contract. Oh, my goodness. And we're assigning your contracts to the Financial News Network in Santa Monica, California. (laughs) Oh, no. And I'm sure there were some very puzzled looks on our faces. (laughs) Okay, so what does that mean? Well, it means that um, they shared the same satellite as Sports Time Cable Network. So FNN used this satellite, normal business hours of the stock market. Yeah. And then they had nothing more to report when the market closed. So the satellite was taken over by Sports Time Cable Network. So they were on every night and then every weekend. Well, when Sports Time went under, FNN thought, well, we need to grab this this satellite time. And what are we going to do? Well, we could put on a sports show. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. That's classic. So let's get the classic decision. Let's get these guys out here and they can figure it out. (laughs) So we, and the puzzled look grew even more puzzled (laughs) at that point. (laughs) They they fly us out there and you know, I mean, we're all good friends. We've all worked together. Sure. And we all go out there and we're all kind of looking at each other. Like, do we really want to do this? Uh, Move our families out here for one year in LA Uh, with an uncertain future, and uh, we met with the folks with FNN, and it was in a tiny studio in Santa Monica, and the weather was beautiful, but we went inside, and the offices were old, and uh, it it was small. It was very cramped with all the FNN reporters. Yeah. And so... When you guys walked in, what were they? They (laughs) they they looked at us like... 
okay, what's going on here now? <laughs> yeah, you got sports guys in the building now, right? <laughs> well, you know, in our business, you're always paranoid, right? When somebody yes. new walks in the door, okay, yeah. is this guy taking my job? Yeah, you're right. Always paranoid. <laughs> always think, always thinking about something. <laughs> so anyway, we all got along together. We did, we all decided, yes, we're going out there because the option was three months of severance pay and look for work. Wow. Well, at least th this is for a year. This is a like, year. Okay. Well, and you know, in this business, you kind of take it step by step. Mm -hmm. You don't get you don't get seven year contracts in That's this right. business, unless you're you know one of your anchors, maybe. No, I don't. <laughs> uh, no comment. Uh, okay. I'm going to leave that one slide. <laughs> but but anyway, um, we all went out there, and so we would go to work at uh, three o'clock in the afternoon, because that's when the people who work for FNN left their desks. So we'd get there at uh, actually about noon, and we'd, we'd be sitting out on the back patio just like this. And we'd have a round table, and we'd put the sports page up there, and we'd be checking off different ideas that we wanted to talk about on the show that night. And, uh, well, okay, Jim, are you going to do the, you're going to do tennis talk tonight, or who's doing tennis? You know, all this sort of thing. And uh, so we'd have to kill three hours out there on the back patio until we could get to a desk inside to do some work at the typewriter. <laughs> That is unbelievable. <laughs> what a story. It was, it was a zoo. But, um, you know, we were on nationwide cable. We started get we'd get phone calls from all over the country. It's one of those things where you're putting in so much effort. You're like, what, what, what are we doing here? Yeah. But then you get the response. You're like, oh, yeah. okay, well, maybe. Yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. You don't want to stop to think about what you're doing because you would never believe it if you tried to process <laughs> <That's> it. <right. laughs> oh, hi, Jim's calling from uh, Nebraska. Jim, what's on your mind? You know, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, sure, sure. And then we'd roll footage of whatever he wanted to talk about, Nebraska football, so the guys would roll footage and we'd talk about Nebraska football. So we all had to really be up on all the sports. You, you didn't know what was going to be thrown at you at any given time. And any caller. Yeah. And that, Man. And so I was the senior producer. Talk about unpredictable, huh? Oh, it was crazy. <laughs> it was crazy, but very good, very good on-air experience. So I was a senior producer, and I wasn't really on the air that much because I was kind of in charge of the overall programming. And I would just kind of fill in. I'd plug myself in, and, well, if this guy can't come in today, I'll take over his shift, that kind of thing. Um, but we would always try to get guests who were coming into L.A. to be on our station. And we could give them an hour. You know, they, they're not going to get an hour. Yeah. If, if they have a marketing opportunity and it's, uh, you know, uh, a tennis player who wants to push a product or something, we, you can do that all you want to. We have an hour to kill here. We're going to take right. calls from around the country, but we have plenty. So, um, you know, some of the agents for some of the players kind of like this access. Mm -hmm. and uh, But I was always uh, working with our, our guest booker, who was a guy who was just, just trying to scramble and find out, hey, can we get a guest for tomorrow night? Who's in town? And um, at that point in 86, the Astros were in first place. They were coming to town to play the Dodgers. This is a long answer, isn't it? No, but this is good. <laughs> I love this answer. All right. So Dick, oh Wagner, so Dick Wagner is the general manager yeah. of the Astros. Yeah. And I thought, well, yeah. That was a great detour, but I'm glad we got that. Now we're back. It's kind of like a Casey Stengel story. It might take an hour, but I'll get back to the <laughs> beginning of the circle here. So so I called Dick Wagner. Hey, Dick, by chance, are you making this trip to L.A. with the Astros? Yeah, I'll be there. I said, well, could you be a guest on this show on Friday night or whatever it was? He said, yeah, I think I can. And so he was on. And uh, we, of course, we had no budget for transportation. 
So we would offer just to drive people, you know, where, where do you want to go? Yeah. So pick them up wherever and let's go. Yeah. We, yeah. we sign off at nine West coast time. So I said to Dick, well, where do you want to go downtown to your hotel? Yeah. So I'm giving him a ride downtown. He said, Hey, uh, are you pursuing anything in baseball? I said, no, nah, I gave up on that. You know, it's just, it's too hard to get jobs. I'm just trying to do the job I'm doing now. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, we had a pleasant conversation. And about uh, six weeks later, I get a phone call from him. Hey, I remember that conversation. Well, we have an opening in Houston. Would you be interested in that? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And he said, well, <laughs> well if, you're, if you're mentioning, yeah. Yeah. So he said, well, uh, just send your resume to uh, Art Elliott. He's our director of broadcasting, and good luck. So I sent my uh, resume and tape to Art Elliott, and <laughs> you'll like this. They narrowed it down to three of us. They brought all three of us in for interviews on different days. And they said to me, we need you to come in on Thursday. I said, well, I need to work the sign-off shift Wednesday night, so I won't get off the air till 9 o'clock West Coast time, which is 11 o'clock your time. They said, well, you know, we, we just can't do anything about that. Thursday has to be the day you come. So we'll pick you up at your hotel at 7 in the morning. So that didn't leave a whole lot of sleep time, right? Wow, so really? They, so they picked me up at 7 in the morning. I go down to the Dome. We have an interview. Uh, with the marketing head, and uh, they said, well, we, uh, we'll show you around the dome a little bit, and they did. Well, now let's we want to take you over to HSE Studios and show you around there. So we get a little tour of HSE Studios. Then they say, well, um, actually, we want you to do an audition for us today, and uh, we have a game from last year between the Astros and the Dodgers on tape, so we want to put your voice on that tape. And we'll have a little crowd noise behind you, and then you'll just yeah. do the play-by-play. And uh, we have the lineups here written down for you. And uh, here are the media guides of the two teams. And we'll give you a half an hour to prepare for this. What are and you thinking at this point? I'm, I'm just absolutely going crazy. <laughs> because first of all, I'd like to be taking a nap somewhere. You know? <laughs> That's right. And secondly, they're throwing a big curveball at me. Mm-hmm. Because in our business, that is pretty rare to have an on-the-spot audition that hadn't been announced in advance. You know, in our business, and this this is why this was a good idea on their part in a way, uh, we send them tapes of our work. They're edited tapes. They're the best work we've ever done. That's what we keep on our work tape. That's right. And they know that. Mm-hmm. So they want to get you out of that realm and put you on the spot and put you under pressure. Yep. Well, how's this guy going to react if we put him on the microphone doing Houston Astros baseball. Uh, we no, that was smart, actually, it was. when you think about that. Yeah. So they, I later found out they did this with all three of us, and then they listened to the tapes from all three of us. So they must have had a hard time deciding if they went to that great length to, uh, to see, well, okay, we'll check one against the other and make our choice. So I was offered the job. That's how it happened. I mean, what do you what do you think at that point when you get uh, offered this job from a major league club? Uh, do you want me to start yesterday? Uh, oh yeah. yeah, because we, my family and I, uh, we have one daughter, and uh, we didn't like L.A. We wanted to get out of there as soon as possible. But I just, you know, I actually had had an interview uh, to get out of broadcasting with a company called Paychex, and they do uh, the payroll for small companies, and uh, I know nothing about that. Yeah, I, I'm not a financial person. I'm not. Uh, well, yes, I've, I've worked regular, you know, eight to five hours kind of thing, but not doing payroll. No, that's, that's right. So they said, oh, you would just be an office manager. You're not doing the payroll. 
and I had an interview with them, and then I took a psychological test, and they said, yeah, you, you know, you're acceptable, you fit the profile, so you have to decide whether uh, you would want to pursue this, and, and uh, you know, we can take you further down the road with more interviews and, and some training and stuff. And my wife and I talked about it. I, you know, we were, I don't know, about 40, 41 then. I said, no, I I don't think Just didn't have it, right? It's not, not, I don't, passion that's is not, not what I want to do. Yeah. I would love to have a stable life for my family. We're tired of moving around, but no. Thank you very much, but that's that's not a good fit. It didn't fit the old saying, if you uh, love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. True. And True. you got a job with the Astros that you loved. Yeah. And from that point forward, so that was the rest is history, huh? Totally a blessing from God that this happened. And, um, yeah, and it's just it's been fantastic. Uh, of course, now, coming in after Gene Elston had been fired, there was a little trepidation to that. Yeah. But you, but you understand as well as anyone, hey, yeah, I know it might be tough. There may be some criticism here. That would be expected. But how can you turn this down? <laughs> no, you can't. No, you can't. There's no way. You, you There's no way you could have. And what, so what were the first couple of days like in the booth, in the Dome, and kind of getting used to life in Houston and with the team and after that 86 season or so – successful and and all that what was that like that it, adjustment for you it was i was so uptight uh, very very tense i went to spring training and the good thing was we did every game on radio in spring training they still do so mm-hmm. you know it was a low pressure environment not many people listening and that you could make your mistakes and it wouldn't be in the front page of the chronicle or anything That's like a- that <laughs> <laughs> it might be on the back page but no um but no i you know milo hamilton of course was the lead guy and larry durker so they were all very very nice to me and um I had I had some bad moments on the air, but I was glad I got a chance to work through that. Then we get to opening day in the Dome. We're playing the Dodgers again. And uh, Milo said, well, you know, one of my assignments, even though I was doing TV, was to do a radio pregame interview. And Milo said, well, usually we do the opposing manager for the first game of the season. So I went down, and I couldn't get Tommy Lasorda until about something like 45 minutes till game time. I was going crazy. I bet. I this could is your not, first game. First game, and I can't get <laughs> Where up. is Tommy? Yeah, well, Tommy had said he would do it when he got on the field, and then he was surrounded by people, and I was waiting my turn, and he must have done 10 interviews on the field before he got to me. Meanwhile, I've got all these game notes and everything sitting on a counter upstairs, and I don't have time to go up and look at them, so... Very stressful first game, but uh, that's the way it started. And it's all about getting into a rhythm as a broadcaster. Yeah. Um, whichever field you decide to do it, whether it's play-by-play, you know, broadcast news. And once you got into a rhythm, you you kind of felt that, yes, this is this is where I belong. This is that I can do this. And, and you went for it. Well, you know, Daniel, I think the important thing for TV play-by-play guys is partner. Because on TV, the analyst, uh, to me, is is the key person. And it's a teamwork. It's it's the producer, director, the camera people, all that. And it really is. But but I think for me, the analyst on TV is more important than the play by play guy. And people might that's interesting. That's, that's an odd, interesting perspective. That's yeah. just the way I think a lot of us TV guys are, are similar in the f- fact that we are bound by certain conventions. You know, we have to tell, you know, the base runners, the fielders describe the play in pretty much the same way. I don't think we differ all that much. We're all a little bit different in terms of maybe the voice intonation or Mm -hmm. how excited we get, or, you know, some guys are more matter of fact, others you have to scrape them off the ceiling. And and so there are some differences there. Yeah. But, but But that's what makes it so fun and unique about every team has their own voice. Yeah. But I, I think the analyst really, you know, what he says to speak to the video 
is what the viewer clings to, really. As you were with the Astros over the years, did you, when did you develop a sense of responsibility to the game, to the organization, to the people that are listening? Because, I mean, a lot of people identify with you. Like I mentioned off the top, I mean, a lot of people grew up with your voice. That That is a huge responsibility to undertake. Yeah, when yeah. did you kind of grow into that role? Well, I think it was probably um, maybe around the time we, we came to Minute Maid because I had been with the Astros for something like 13 years at that point. So I, I you know, it, coming in after Gene Elston was very difficult, but after a few years, things died down a little bit, and, um, you know, it's like with anything else. You t- tend to relax a little bit more, and when you relax in our business, you do a better job. Uh, when you're uptight, you don't do well. Yeah. So You can't at, be yourself. At least that's the case with me. Now, with you, it may not be that No, way. I mean, I, 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 I sense the same thing. I mean, if you relax, you can – you feel at home. You, you, you have a sense of, okay, this is my job. This is – this is what I'm supposed to be doing, and people like it. Right. And I think that's probably how you felt after a while, right? It's right. only natural. And sure, yeah. and you know how it is. You go around town, oh, you're the Astros guy or whatever. So people now start to understand your, your association. And, yes, I think the responsibility for me grew stronger and stronger and stronger. Hey, this is we've got this fan base that needs to know this, and I, I've got to tell them, and they need to know what's going on there. And our people are asking me this, and I need to address this tonight on the air because it may not be, you know, a topic that that the team wants me to get into in great yep. depth. But I feel a responsibility to at least address it. Yeah, in some fashion. It's a fine line that you have to walk, right? Yeah. So, how did you develop your style? What would you say your style was? There's so many different styles in broadcasting. I mean, I, I grew up a, a Chicago White Sox fan, and I still am to this day. I know. 2005. I'm glad the Astros won another World Series. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. Okay. That was on you, <laughs> yeah, Daniel. Yeah. Now that was on me. <laughs> you and yes. Jeff Blum. Yes. <laughs> and Jeff and I had talked about that. Actually, it's probably unprofessional of me to do this. This is a story I haven't told anybody. Yeah. But I, I went up to Jeff one day, and I kind of pulled him aside and I'd be like, Jeff, thank you, <laughs> thank you. And he started laughing because I said, I'm, I've, I've been a White Sox fan since I was. I don't know, three or four. We used to go to old games at Comiskey when I was in, in Chicago and all that. Um, you know, Hawk Harrelson obviously comes to mind. He had his own style. Yeah. Whether you like it or not, that was his style. Yeah. What was your style? How did you come to that style that you felt comfortable with? I, I think you just have to be yourself, and, and I know you've heard that many times, but um, I would listen to Jack Buck mm-hmm. and how casual he was, and I love that. And then Harry Carey was the opposite of casual. He was passionate. <laughs> yeah. But they were on the air actually doing Cardinals baseball when I was a kid. So I saw the difference in the two styles, and it worked for both guys. And, you know, a lot of my friends would say, oh, I like Harry Carey a lot more than I like Jack Buck. And I felt the other way around because, yeah. to me, Harry was he was great at building drama. Mm-hmm. He could do that like nobody else. But a lot of it was about Harry. Uh, Jack was not about Jack. He was about what's going on in the game, and I really like that. And then, of course, you know, at that point, you didn't grow up listening to Vin Scully if you lived in the Midwest. Uh, You'd have to live in in California. But um, then later when he became more of a national Mm -hmm. figure, I I thought his style was just, I think he's the best of all time by far. There is nobody on the same planet with him. But could you as an announcer or me as an announcer or most other people approximate that? No, no. 
Yeah. He was one of a kind. He was just a remarkable storyteller. Every time I, I got to listen to a Dodgers game, and that's what always, I mean, thousands upon thousands of stories. Sure, he was calling what was going on in the game, but just his knowledge of the game and the way it was, I don't know, it was just so effortless. And I'm, I don't know what you thought of it, but I, yeah, he was just was I, I just, remarkable. you know, when I, when I listened to him, Daniel, I thought, nobody's this good. You know, how how can he possibly be this good? You know, he could be talking about uh, the starting pitcher one day, and then a uh, minute, and the next minute, he's talking about opera. And uh, most baseball fans would be turned off by that, but he found a way to make a connection. Yeah, and it wasn't uh, contrived; it wasn't scripted. He just did it. Uh, he was just so knowledgeable in so many fields. And yeah, you're right about the storyteller. I think people love that as a general rule, and uh, I thought, wow, this guy just has it all. And he did. He did. But would you shoot for the stars? I, I think that's an unreachable star, certainly. Yeah. So uh, you locked in on your style, yeah. which was fantastic in its own right. And you, 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 you Yeah, absolutely. You you delivered the game, and everybody loved what you did with the Astros. So that was it. You, you, when, did you be, when did you realize, okay, this is, this is it. This is my style, and I'm, I'm, I'm going with it. Well, I would say when Jim Deshays came on the scene because he was so funny. He loosened me up. <laughs> J.D. Uh, yeah, and I had a tendency to be, you know, focused on, okay, you've got to get the facts straight. you got, you know, serious – because of the journalism school training, right? Definitely, They yes. did not teach us to be entertainers in journalism school. No, no, and definitely not. I, I'm not saying they should have, but that to do what a baseball broadcaster has to do requires stepping a little further on out on the diving board. Oh, yeah. And doing that. And Especially I didn't with a game that. like baseball. Yeah, I didn't yeah. learn that for a long time, Daniel. I really didn't learn that because I felt uh, very uncomfortable. I thought, well, hey, I'm not, I'm not the performer here. I'm a reporter. Once I got out of that mindset, and it was That's because it was yeah. because of Jim Deshays, and the feedback that I would get from people, oh man, that guy is just unbelievable. And you guys were talking about this and that, and I started to realize, hey, that's what people want. Yeah, they don't want me repeating the score or telling them statistics from something four years ago. That's what they they want to be entertained. We are here to entertain them. And he taught me more about that than anybody. You know, people would come up to me and say, oh, man, I hope this game's going to be one-sided because that's when J.D. starts to get funny. Is that right? Yes. And they said, oh, you know, I live for that time when this game is not interesting anymore <laughs> because he's going to be talking about Seinfeld and all these other things. Yeah, yeah. That they, and I had no idea what he was talking about most of the time. Was that a hard adjustment for you? It was in a way. Uh, I mean, not not saying any negatively towards any, but that yeah. was since you you were used to maybe doing it a certain way, yeah. And then that you know he comes along, kind of changes it up a little bit, but that was good for you. Oh, it was run. the best. It was. It taught me what I needed to learn, and that was just shut up and let him take over, <laughs> because this guy's an entertainer. And um, but he could um, he could explain things without uh, being judgmental about a player who had made a mistake. He could explain what the player did without throwing him under the bus, so to speak. And uh, so I learned a lot, too, about the way he handled things. He had a pretty light approach. He didn't bury people. And uh, so I thought, you know, he and I, for 16 years, yep. uh, we just uh, – I, I thought it was a fantastic opportunity to work with somebody who really both knew the game and knew how to entertain. What is it? about baseball in your mind that makes it so good we all have a theory we all have our beliefs and our thoughts but what is it for you that makes this such a beautiful game 
I think it's the unpredictability of the time element. You don't know. For instance, you may be preparing a story that you want to tell on the air, and you may have five really quick ball games in a row, and you couldn't begin to get that story in. And you understand that story doesn't belong in those games. You can't put that story in those games because it doesn't fit with the amount of time you need to tell it. You can't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you'll have a three-and-a-half-hour game. And now is this where this story belongs? Maybe. Depends. Uh, and, and there's that element. Sure. To, as a broadcaster, to me, um, how, how to work in different elements – is the fascinating part. And it may not always be who wins the game that's as fascinating as how you broadcast the game sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, I, I think I think the unpredictability, and so that means, for me, there's a pyramid for the broadcaster. There's there's And I talked one time to J.D. about this because we were talking about, hey, I want to tell a longer story, but I know I'm not going to have time to finish it. Yeah. So how do you handle that? For me, there's a pyramid. If, if you feel like it's early enough in the game that you can come back to it later, you can start it, and you look at the tip of a pyramid coming down. You, you get your essential point that you want to get in to start it, mm-hmm. and then there's a pitch. If that pitch is a double play ball and that's the end of the inning, that's it for that inning. But you can come back to that if you've led into it properly. And then you can start filling in further on down the pyramid until you get to the bottom part, and and that's the essential end of the story. But um, it's always a challenge to try to figure out how to do that. And finally, you get so frustrated, you say, I just can't tell any more stories unless they're 20 seconds. It just doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) And so you learn how to tell 20-second stories. Yeah. (laughs) What uh, the relationships that you've built with the players, um, what does that mean to you? It means a lot to me, and, you know, I I think as the years go by, it means more and more Uh, because now I could – Craig Reynolds and I were at a breakfast a few weeks ago, and it was a breakfast to celebrate the Astros, and he told his cheeseburger story, and he had all of us rolling on the floor, and I thought, you know, I've known him since the first year here, 87, and, uh, you know, I don't see him very often. But you can just sit down with somebody who, who's been a player for this team who you knew like that. It's like you've been around him every week for 20 years. What, is it, what does it mean to you when they speak so highly of you? I know guys like Craig and, and Jeff and all those guys at the teams of the 90s and now in their Hall of Fame. And what does it mean when they speak highly of you? Because well, I know they've done that on several occasions. Yeah, it's, it's a little embarrassing for me, but um, – these guys are they're, they're good friends. So what you what you realize when you're a baseball broadcaster is a lot of things are told to you. Once a player develops a certain amount of trust in you, in confidence. So hey, I can talk to this guy about the game, and uh, he's he's not going to betray this confidence. And it helps me to know okay, this is what was going on with you at that time, which I didn't know about. So for instance, Craig Biggio was in St. Louis. And it was about 97 degrees, and they had artificial turf. Ugh. And, um, oh, man, you could just see the heat just radiating off that turf in waves before the game. And about the seventh inning, there was an easy two-hop ground ball hit to him, and he missed it. He just missed it. I mean, he didn't even touch it. He whiffed it. And I just thought, I don't understand. 
he doesn't do that. But I didn't say that on the air. Well, he missed the ground ball. And so, you know, he didn't want this told on the air. But a few weeks after that, he said to me, well, I was having heat exhaustion that day. And I actually saw three baseballs coming toward me, and I chose the wrong one. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, yeah, he did. Wow. Yeah, and and so, but he didn't want me using this as an excuse for him. Absolutely. He didn't yeah. want me to be his apologist. Totally understandable. Yeah. So that that kind of thing, and, and I'm you know, sure there are tons of stories like that. There with are all these guys. There are, and they don't, and and players are more guarded now mm-hmm. than they were, you know, ten years ago, twenty years yeah. ago. Uh, there's more of a line drawn between the media and players now. And uh, so we don't have as many of those conversations anymore and dinners and things like that. Not that I was ever – I don't believe in being buddy-buddy with players. I, but now I do Yeah. because now it's over. So, you know, <laughs> exactly. we, we've all gone through this, right. so we're just having fun now. Uh, but at the time, yes, I think, I think there should be a healthy distance uh, between the player and the broadcaster. Um, but, no, it's, it's just, uh, you know, when you're lucky to have done uh, a, a player's entire career – that's right. You know, yeah. 15 years for Jeff or 20 years for Craig. It's just uh, there's a special bond there, and uh, I'm very grateful for those guys and, and uh, what they say. But now it's just fun because if I'm filling in for Sparky on radio, mm-hmm. I, I got a little shock. I got a little jolt earlier this year because I didn't realize that, that Sparky and Bidge have this new tradition that they started a while back, and that is that uh, about the uh, bottom of the first inning, Sparky will be talking on the air, and Craig will sneak up behind him and pop him in both ribs real hard oh no <laughs> yeah so oh. i got one of those earlier this year oh gosh <laughs> <laughs> now i know to expect it but that you know hey let's have some fun with this why yeah. not <laughs> so when you stepped away how difficult was that for you it wasn't difficult at all because i had been thinking about it uh for, you had yes yeah. for for two or three years and uh fortunately the astros uh, agreed to cut back my schedule to 100 mm-hmm. games on TV, so that meant I was only doing about 20 games on the road because I just I hit a wall when it came to the traveling, to getting into a city at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And, and how do you do it? I mean, I, I, for the longest time when I was growing up, I said I wanted to be in uh, you know a broadcaster. I wanted to do play-by-play for yeah. baseball. I mean, that was because baseball. My family's from Cuba. That was the that's the huh? sport that we grew up with. My grandfather played on the island. He played one game with Fidel Castro. That's wow. a, that's a crazy story. One day they're pickup game and i know this is totally off tangent but i mean go for it yeah so one day they're playing and this uh motorcade drives up with the cuban flags on it and out steps fidel castro (laughs) wow he has his uniform in the trunk and says i want to play on this field my grandfather's a catcher and he was a pitcher and sure enough fidel was throwing pitches to my grandfather that's something Grandfather says that's one of the worst times ever. <laughs> he was so nervous. Yeah, yeah. He was so nervous. But baseball has always been that for me. And I've, yeah. that's been my favorite sport yeah. uh, ever since I was a little kid. So I wanted to do it. But it just, I don't think I could do the travel. I mean, right. how did you do the travel? Well, you tell yourself, look, this, this is not uh, anybody's favorite part of the job. But this is the job. Uh, this is what I always wanted to do. So it's time to embrace it. When yeah. you're younger, you can handle it a lot better. You, sure. you don't need as much rest. Your body bounces back, that kind of thing. But when you're older, you just have to be a little more careful with managing your time. I think what you try to do is you can look down the road and say, well, okay, here's the road trip. We're going to be going from the West Coast to the East Coast. And we're getting into Atlanta or wherever it is at 5 o'clock in the morning. And we're going to have a game that night. So what I need to do is work ahead a little bit for that game. 
I'm going to do that, you know, the day before or two days before. I'm going to get some things written down, some notes and, and things that I might want to say that day so I can sleep in a little bit later and I won't require as much preparation time. And I'll go ahead and start prepping a little bit for the for the Braves yeah. or whatever. Uh, that's all you can do. Uh, but, you know, uh, what happens, and this this to me is, is, um, is why I think I appreciate the people who do this job. When game time comes, it's showtime, baby. Uh, I don't. I don't care if you have a headache, or if your daughter is sick, or your mother's in the hospital. Uh, you have to block all of that out, and it's time to do this game. And this game means something to a lot of people, and you better act like it means something to you. Yeah. Because if you're just you know totally casual and unconcerned, that comes through on the microphone. It yeah. really does. So you had been thinking about it for a while. That this yeah. was it. This yeah. was. Yeah, and, it right was, and, and people say, well, why did you retire after 2016? They won the championship in 2017. I, well, maybe I should have done it 10 years ago. I don't know. <laughs> but, no, that was just the timing of it. And, yes, I knew that there could be something like that in the future. I, I thought the teams were really going to be good the next few years, and I had thought about that, and I thought, you know what, I've been blessed to have this job for all these years. It's time to give somebody else a shot at it. I don't want to be just showing up not putting in the that's work. It. Yeah. Uh, no, that's not fair. It's not fair to our fan base. So I, I've been completely thrilled with it. Um, fun as a fan to watch, uh, to talk yeah. to the guys. I don't uh, really like to hang around the booth a lot and get in their way, but I'll be in there some talking. We'll have some good conversations. But, yeah, it's um, it's been a great transition, and uh, I would not go back and change anything with it. It's a great crew, um, both sides, radio and TV. I think the Astros are blessed, and they were blessed for many years with you. Uh, now, what are you doing? Playing golf? Uh, uh, you shooting 65 these no, days? No, 70, I, I would have to quit after about uh, 12 holes if I were to say that. But, <laughs> no, I um, I play golf a couple days a week, um, doing some volunteer work. Yeah. Still working part-time for the Astros. Uh, more actively involved with church and just just kind of in the community. You know, I think you have a lot of passion uh, projects. I know that yeah. you are working on. And you, yeah, feel free, but please tell us well, all about I, it. You know, I, I'm writing a book about this season, and I've done that before. It may or may not be published, but I like to write, even yeah. though it's not published, because I'm still doing some broadcasting, filling in. So it helps me that I'm writing that I, because I may go six weeks without doing a game, but at least I'm sort of mentally in touch with what the team is doing by, by putting those words down on paper. And then that way I can look back and refresh my memory, which isn't too good on, on some <laughs> things that happened on the games I didn't do. So, you know, um, but I, I wanted to, uh, with this book, not only tell about this season, but this, this golden era of Astros it baseball. It really is a golden era. So that's what I'm calling it. But uh, Oh, is that right? Yeah, okay. but somebody else may beat me to the punch on the title. You never, Of course, there's not a copyright on titles. You could, believe it or not, five people could come out with Astros golden era this winter, and that would be allowed. There's no copyright. Is that right? Yeah, so. I did not. I've never ventured into the publishing world. I I don't know what that's all about. But wow. Yeah. So, but if somebody came out with one before I did, I'd have to change it slightly just for my own peace yeah. of my way. <laughs> yeah. I, this is not the copycat yeah. of this guy's that's book. That's right. But uh, well, no. this is a heck of a story to tell this year. You're right. Well, this is the golden era of it, Astros baseball. It is, and you know, not only with these players and these accomplishments, but. Um, I have more of a sense this being uh, our 50th wedding anniversary earlier this year and then uh, with the Astros uh, starting their Hall of Fame this year and inducting yep. people for the first time. So we're going back through uh, all the years since 62 
And of course, uh, 50 years ago in 69, a man on the moon for the first time. So 69 Miracle Mets. There were, there were a lot of things happening, uh, sort of unrest, unrest about Vietnam. Uh, yeah. and, and so these things were all going through my mind as I was doing some writing. So I tried to put um, quite a bit of history about the Astros in this book. So what I will do occasionally is if I'm writing about George Springer, I may see a parallel between him and Jimmy Wynn. So yeah. I may then dovetail into some pages about Jimmy Wynn, that kind of thing. I'm trying to bring those guys from, from yesteryear back to life again. Um, and that's been fun to do, do kind of a different type project that way. But um, so, you know, but that'll, that's just a short term project uh i think you know to just try to serve the community uh in, giving back in, like you yeah, in whatever way you can i think i think it's our duty and and we've certainly been blessed to my wife and i so we want to try to do that bill yeah. thank you so much for thank taking you, the time and telling your story it's a great story i enjoyed listening to you thank growing you. up here in houston so it's kind of surreal for me to sit down and talk to you like this right now so thank you so much for taking the time here on episode six of time out with dg the podcast we will see you next time. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Daniel.